Welcome to the EdTech Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk, and today we're talking about interpersonal communication with John Daly, a professor at UT Austin. John, thank you so much for joining me. I'm delighted to be here. So you have uh, quite a resume there at UT. You've been teaching for a while, and you've, you've taught kind of a large spectrum of communication courses. Tell me a little bit about uh, what you're teaching. Well, one course I teach is called Interpersonal Communication. It's a large class. It focuses on how do people communicate in relationships, whether it be work relationships or personal relationships. I also teach an MBA class called Advocacy, which is how people persuade and sell ideas. Um, my big focus consistently is how do you, how do, how does one become more interpersonally effective with others? Uh, what tricks, what skills do you need to make people want to work with you, listen to you, spend time with you? So that's certainly a helpful uh, skill to have in the business world because I think one thing that I know a lot of a lot of professionals want to do is improve their communication skills and specifically be able to effectively communicate and persuade people in a way that feels natural and and germane to them while still implementing some of the, I guess, basics of persuasive communication. So let's talk a little bit about the advocacy course, but specifically this role of interpersonal communication and effectiveness in the business world. Why is that so important? We have to, we want to work with other people. Some people are very good getting other people to want to work with them. Other people are not so good. Uh, those people who are effective getting other people to work with them on projects, on ideas, tend to be more successful. You know, when you think about it, when you start off in a job initially as, as a young person, you don't necessarily have to deal that much with other people. But the higher you go in an organization, the more central communication becomes. Top executives spend upwards of 90% of the time talking and listening to other people. Execs will tell you in surveys that the biggest complaint they have is how poorly many people communicate in organizations. We're not talking public speaking here. We're talking about conversations, meetings, everyday interactions. Without those skills, you can't succeed. Uh, my example is you start off as an accountant. You do great calculations. You're really wonderful at numbers. Uh, if you're really good at the number stuff, they'll promote you into managing and engagement, for example, managing customers, managing employees. And everything you learn in accounting school doesn't matter that much anymore. What matters now is you be able to motivate people, handle conflicts, do meetings well, persuade people to do business with you. So interpersonal skills are absolutely essential in any business you can go into. And those people who are good at interpersonal sorts of things do much better in life than those who are not. We all know people who are just extraordinarily good working with other people. And we also know people have this uncanny ability to kind of mess over every relationship. Who's going to be more successful? Probably the person who's good at communicating. What are some of the common traits that you see of people who are effectively able to communicate? A couple of things to think about, but let me give you a few. Number one, good communicators are very attentive and very responsive. Minimally, they act attentive. They're talking to you, they're not looking over your shoulder so yours can meet. So I oftentimes tell people, you know, if somebody comes to your office to talk to you, take your cell phone, put it in the desk drawer. What's to communicate to people? You matter more than my phone does at this point. If you don't want to do that, at least flip your phone over so you can see the back of the phone rather than the front of the phone. That avoids getting distracted by what comes in the phone. That's being attentive. Yeah. It's also being responsive, though. Good communicators don't simply listen and pay attention. They respond as well. What do we know about being responsive? Here's one principle. People want you to understand them more than they want you to agree with them. Hmm. Understand me, I can actually live with your disagreement. So a good boss, a good leader, you don't have to agree with your team. You got to make sure you understand where they're coming from. 
And good communicators work hard at that notion of understanding. I may disagree with you, but if I understand what you're saying and understand why you want to say those things and what you mean, we can actually have a good discussion about that. Classic case is this. In work situations, actually in home situations as well, people seldom say anything to be wrong. When they say something, when they do something, in their minds, they have a really good reason. So if you really want to be responsive, try to figure out people's good reasons. They wouldn't do something, they wouldn't say something they know to be wrong. So why is that person thinking they're right at that moment? Why are they saying it that way? They must have a good reason. Figuring out that good reason is a way of understanding. The example using my undergraduates, I say, how many of you have great parents? Many raise their hands. Say, so you don't expect your parent to agree with you. You hope your parent will understand where you're coming from. So demonstrating that understanding is one skill every great communicator has. A second skill is they tend to be very effective getting the messages across. People understand what they're talking about. How do you do that? There are a number of ways. Let's think there's a couple right now. One is this, become more redundant. There's a difference between repetition and redundancy. Repetition is saying it over and over again in the same way. Redundancy is saying it over and over again, but in different ways. Don't get me wrong. There are times to be repetitive. Uh, you memorize vocabularies by repetition. Uh, this is wonderful old story. This man, so in love with this woman who lived far from him, that every day for 500 days, he wrote her a love letter. She married the postman. You see every day, the postman. Out of sight is out of mind. We do studies of how people manage dispersed teams. And the data is relatively clear. If you work far from your office, far from your headquarters, you're going to probably get more work done, but you're less likely to get promoted. Being around matters. So what's the problem? If I don't say it the first time, why would repetition help? So I have an odd accent sometimes. I'll go up to someone in the street and say, how do I get such and such an address? People are nice. They'll give me their directions. But then in my strongest accent, I'll say, I am so sorry. I don't understand. Well, most people do simply repeat the directions again in a louder voice. That's stupid. <laughs> Not that I can't hear. They should say it in different ways. So when we're talking about being redundant, it means you say things in different ways to help people remember. What's an example of redundancy? Whenever you're explaining a concept to somebody, Give people a couple examples, not one, but a couple examples. Yeah. One, the example is the concept. If you give me a couple examples, I begin to understand the concept. So if you remember high school word problems, they never had you do one word problem. They said, do all the even, all the odd ones. Had you done one problem, you confused the problem with the concept. By doing a series of problems, you got the only concept. Think about another case. I'm teaching you uh, the principle of the lever and the fulcrum in high school physics. I show you somebody trying to get a, a tree stump out of the yard using a lever and fulcrum. You say, I know what it is. It's something they must use to get trees out. Then I show you a teeter-totter or a seesaw. It's exactly the same physical principle explained in a very different way. So anytime you want people to remember and understand what you're talking about, be more redundant. Another form of redundancy is the notion of visuals. We are becoming a visual society again. Uh, in 1800, a very small percentage of the world could actually read. We've been reading for a short period of time. We've been looking forever. What we're finding is this generation we're dealing with now in the workplace, generations coming afterwards, have been raised mostly visuals. They watch iPads rather than read books. They do Minecraft as opposed to Monopoly. Uh, they think in terms of visual sorts of things. So you've got to actually get much better with visuals if you want to get your message across. Words count, but words plus pictures communicate much more effectively. We know people remember much more when they both get a picture as well as some words. One by itself doesn't help as much as both do. So when you're communicating, you're visual. So what's that mean? The best kind of communication you do is probably face-to-face. -face. Because when you're face-to-face, -face, not only do you hear the sound of the voice, not only do you hear the words, but you can see the person as well. In relationships, I'll ask people, let's suppose you're married, you have a choice. Get a letter from your partner or basically talk to your partner on the phone. 
Most people say, talk to the partner on the phone. Talk to the phone or do a Skype or FaceTime thing. Most people say FaceTime. Do FaceTime or face-to-face? Most people say face-to-face. Why? More media, more redundancy. So some of the major points that you just went over, uh, important points there. So the first thing, talking about being attentive and being an active listener is also meaning being responsive. And so I think you made a great point there by saying that people want to be understood more than they really want to be agreed with, that they just want to make sure that when you're making your case to somebody that they truly understand where they're coming from. That led into another point that you made about figuring out somebody's good reason. Uh, It makes me think of this principle of giving people the benefit of the doubt, right? So when, when we talk about trying to communicate something that has maybe an opposing idea or something that people may not completely agree with, why are those those tactics so effective? Well, because you may have a disagreement, but each side probably has a reason in their mind for it. So when you're talking to your partner, for example, you have disagreements sometimes. Very few people do anything stupid. They have a good reason for doing it. So you have an argument. Well, I said that because you did that, but I did that because you wanted this, but I wanted that because you wanted this. Each of you has a good reason. And if you can figure out people's good reasons, you can work with them more clearly. The example always used as a concept from negotiation, concept called interest versus positions. Positions are what people want. Interests are why they want these things. So imagine the following case. You have a husband and wife, newlyweds, just got married a week ago. They got back from the honeymoon. They are going through the mail and discover this huge check in the mail. What do you want to do with the wife says? The husband says, I don't know. What do you want to do? She says, well, we don't, we don't need to be back. We'll work for another week. Let's take a second honeymoon. Great idea, the husband says. What do you want to do? She says, well, if I had my choice, I'd like to go to San Francisco. What do you want to do? He said, well, if I had my choice, i probably like to do a cruise ship. Now, what do they do? He wants a cruise ship. She wants San Francisco. They both want six days, so they can't compromise and say, let's do three and three. What do they do? They ask why. They try to figure out each other's good reasons. So why might the husband want a cruise ship? Maybe a lot of food. Maybe alcohol, maybe gambling, maybe becoming basically a vegetable, not having to think about anything. Why does the wife want to go to San Francisco? I don't know, shopping. Now, where could they go where she could shop? He could eat, drink, gamble, and do nothing. Vegas, Southern France, there are many choices. But if you figure out each other's good reasons for wanting something, you might be able to find a solution that accommodates both people. That means you got to listen to them and not simply listen and say, you know, what they're saying, but understand the why behind it. You know, in a romantic relationship, if you're upset, you say, okay, I'll do what you want. Happy, you try to figure out the why behind the what. Let's apply it in a business situation, safety, for example. No one comes to work planning to get hurt. No one says, today I'm going to get hurt. Anytime somebody does a safety violation, anytime somebody does something unsafe, they probably had a good reason until one second before the incident happened for what they're doing. I didn't time this thing on because I have good balance. Until they fall off, they have a good reason. Uh, We all have good reasons. Using your cell phone in the car. You have a good reason to be on the phone until one second before that accident when you say, how could it have been so dumb? So in organizations, if you want people to be safer, you need to understand people's reasons for not being safe and then build the company's rules around those good reasons. Once you figure out their good reasons for why they did something stupid, you can actually design the organization, design the equipment so people can't hurt themselves again. So going over the other, uh, one of the other major points that you made, uh, talking about being redundant versus repetitive. 
And I think that's an interesting distinction because that's not something you normally would think of um, as that contrast. There's the difference between literally repeating the same thing over versus uh, showing another way to say it. So when we talk about interpersonal communication, it literally is just the role of communication in relationships, and especially in a corporate environment. As you said before, that is critically important because you have to be able to sell your ideas and you have to sell yourself. And that kind of lends um, itself to talking about charisma. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that. And what are some of those elements of a charismatic person that I imagine overlap with some of these uh, traits of somebody who's who's able to effectively communicate. Charisma is a really great word for what some leaders have. Somebody has charisma, you want to please them. It's a very simple way of thinking of charisma. If somebody has a great deal of charisma, you want to please that person. We've actually asked the question, what makes somebody have charisma? And we have a number of variables that seem to matter. Uh, one is you like being around them. You enjoy being around them. They make it good to be around them. They're positive people. But it's not something to be positive. They have a number of, if you will, tricks that make people say, what a sweet person that person is. What a nice person that is. Uh, what are some examples? Um, you recognize people in unexpected places. People like it when you recognize them. They say, I remember you from school many years ago. And they go, thank you for remembering me. Uh, they make themselves important to the people that matter to you. So you bring your daughter to work. The person with charisma actually talks to your daughter, plays with your daughter. They recognize your attempts to please really important skill. Oftentimes, somebody will do something for you. It's not exactly what you want, but they think they're pleasing you. Appreciate what they're doing, even if it's not what you want. You can guide them later on. People with charisma are very socially competent about these sorts of things. They show up for things that matter to people. They do go to events. So when somebody's retiring, they go to the event. Somebody's birthday party, they go to the event, a wedding. Actually, one little footnote we've discovered in the research. It is nice if you go to weddings and birthday parties and retirement parties. What people remember most, though, is when you go to loved ones' funerals. Hmm. It's a little secret a lot of execs know. Go to funerals. People appreciate people who come to their if loved ones' funerals. You don't have to do that, but it's nice. CEOs go to many events. They really don't want to be there, but they got to be there because they're not there. People notice. So part of charisma is kind of this social reinforcement. It feels good to be around this person. They use language in some ways, too. There's an old consultant piece of advice. Anytime you want to use the word but, use the word and instead. It makes people more empowered. We could do this but means it's not going to happen. We could do this and what it would take. Charismatic people also perceive to be competent. And we spend a lot of time studying how do people signal they're competent to people. Uh, let me give you a few ones that we've discovered in the research. No details that surprise people. When somebody says, how do you even know that? Your credibility goes up immediately. When you know something people impress you know, people go, that's fascinating. Where do you get that information from? They think it's really quite impressive. Uh, what's another competency measure? Make sure people discover what you're good at. There are a number of things we have on our resumes that are good. You can do one of two things, announce them to people or let them discover. When people discover on their own, they actually like you more than when you tell them. Suppose I speak another language. Suppose I speak Spanish. I could tell you I speak Spanish. Or you and I could actually be in an elevator one time. Somebody clearly speaks Spanish in the elevator. And I start talking to them in Spanish. As we walk out of the elevator, you say, John, you speak Spanish? Yeah, it's no big deal. Which gets more credibility? Mm -hmm. When I know it or when you discover it? So I think people discover interesting competencies. A third thing in terms of competency is find difficult times and succeed in them. You know, if you're married, for example, you probably love your spouse. Hopefully you respect your spouse too. Respect gets formed in the difficult times. It's easy times no one judges how good you are. 
But we judge people competent in the difficult times. When somebody gets a reputation in a company for saving the day, when they solve a problem no one else can solve in a difficult time, they deal with an emergency brilliantly, that's when you come to respect that person a great deal. Competency is part about respect about how good this person is. And you show that when the difficult times, a friend of mine one time said, John, even turkeys fly in hurricanes and everything flies. And no wind at all if you see a turkey flying, that's something special. <laughs> so stand up in those difficult moments and build respect by achieving competently some things people are surprised you can do. There's also a relationship element about this sort of thing. There's a trust component, excuse me. There's a trust component to charisma also. And trust has numerous components to it. We think trust was simple. Now we know it's very complex. For example, reliability is a component of trust. If you're a manager, you have two employees working for you. One employee is late every day by exactly nine minutes. Second employee is on time one day, late the next, early the next, forgets to come to work the fourth day. Who are you going to pay more attention? Who are you going to trust more? Probably the one who's late every day, reliability. Master your small commitments. You got to keep your big commitments so people notice when you keep your itty bitty commitments. If traffic is really bad in your community, make sure you're never late for a meeting. People notice people on time. When you promise to send an express mail envelope to somebody, make sure you send it right away. So people begin to notice those people who are very reliable, keep their small commitments. You got to keep your big commitments. You won't have a job otherwise. So it's the small ones that get people's attention. Uh, what's another component? Trust and charisma. Being a nice and kind person. Nice is not easy. Polite is easy. Nice takes work. People with charisma oftentimes are seen as very nice people. Now, how do they do niceness? They engage in what we call dis positive discretionary behaviors. What's that mean? Well, polite is I hold the door for you when you come in after me. That's polite. Nice is it's pouring rain. I go outside and actually help you carry stuff and getting wet. Meanwhile, you say, what a sweet person. That means you're nice. Mm -hmm. So what's an example of ex executives, for example? I'm working with this company a couple months ago. They actually do outdoor sorts of things, okay? Uh, the exec is walking across an area with me, sees a family taking a picture, three kids, a husband, wife, husband's taking a picture of the wife and the kids. Now the wife is coming out, take a picture of the husband, and three kids. CEO stops and says, would you want me to take a picture of all five of you? Customer says, that'd be lovely. Now he has his name tag on, but understand how many of that customer remember fondly that experience for a long period of time. He didn't have to stop. He wasn't even asked to stop. He just volunteered to be nice. Exec's bios always include the nice paragraph at the bottom. Board of directs this charity, married for so many years, has so many kids. Now it's perceived nice, not necessarily real nice. Bernie Madoff, the embezzler, had a great nice paragraph. <laughs> Another component of trust is vulnerability. If you have nothing to lose and I got a lot to lose, there's no trust at all. So people with charisma say they're in the same boat as you are. They have equal risk. I won't win if you don't win. If one side can win and the other side cannot win, there's never any trust in relationships, business or otherwise. So we have this phrase, you want some skin in the game? We trust people who have something to lose. So when you're working with people, I cannot win without you. The only way I lose is if I don't help you out. Thus, we have trust. We build trust. And finally, another component trust, there are many others, but these are maybe some of the real important, being honest. Let's be clear. You don't want to engage in mean honesty. Mean honesty is an unhealthy thing to do that actually destroys relationships. But honesty about important things is absolutely critical. What's one way of doing this to build trust and build charisma? Put a spotlight on your mistakes. When you make a mistake, fess up right away. Announce it before anyone finds out. You know, you're working in a company, you have two employees working for you. Employee number one makes a mistake, tells you nothing about, tries to fix themselves. You never find out about it until it blows up in your face. 
Employee number two makes the same mistake, but they tell you right away about the mistake and what they're doing to fix it. Who do you trust more? Probably the second employee. We actually trust people who fess up when they made a mistake and tell us right away. I teach at the university a course in crisis management. Trust me, anytime you have a crisis, the first question the media is going to ask is, when did you know? We knew four weeks ago, your credibility is done. We found out 20 minutes ago, we're letting you right now. Guess what? They trust you more, don't they? I mean, there's another component of charisma. It's physical appearance to some extent. We always talk to undergraduates and sometimes execs about why physical appearance matters. They're good-looking people, by and large. Not necessarily born good-looking, but they make themselves good-looking. Dress a little bit better than other people in the room. Not too much so, but one degree better than other people in the room. If everyone's wearing jeans, wear khakis. Everyone's wearing khakis, wear nice slacks. Everyone's wearing nice slacks, wear a jacket. So appearance sometimes matters. The rule of appearance I tell people in business many times is this. Dress to be invited. What happens? You're on a trading floor one day. Everyone's dressed kind of the same. Your boss has to entertain a client. He looks around the trading floor and says, who can come with me who's dressed well enough to go to this restaurant? If you're dressed well enough to be invited, you're probably dressed okay in the organization. And so people with charisma do that. Charismatic people go overboard in making you like them. They, they say my job is to make you, they don't say this aloud, but they say anytime I meet somebody, my goal is don't walk away saying what a nice person I am. They find things they have in common with you. That makes them more charismatic as well. John, we could have 10 more podcasts just about these particular topic and go, go deep on those. Thank you so much for your insight today. Delighted to be here. And thanks to you listeners for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries. Subscribe to articles, podcasts, and creative video. Until next time, I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk.